Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. I know in your programs it says that Peggy is supposed to sing. She's not feeling well tonight, so you'll have to give her a pass on that. We always enjoy her singing. Great to have you out tonight. Genesis chapter 26, we pick up a sermon in progress, part two. Uh, The generational effect, the echo effect of your influence. This is not just for moms and dads and grandpas. There's lessons in here for all of us. Genesis chapter 26. And uh, we'll start with a verse. Uh, Of course, this is the life of Isaac and how he reflects the very, uh, not only the very nature and nurture of his father Abraham, but how even his trials, his life exposure, his circumstances were so similar to his parents, his daddy especially. The generational echo effect. You know, seeds that we plant today in the lives of our young people, those around us that we influence will last and last and last. I had a video, I didn't tell the sound room about this, I sent it to the sound room earlier in this week and I just spaced it, but it's about a trumpet player in the Colorado River Gorge, and he's playing, he's, he's quite a good trumpet player, and he's playing some high notes and uh, just very shrill, uh, and he, he just did it for that very effect, to hear the echo off the canyon walls. Amazing! That far away, because of the hard surface, how that... Uh, how that trumpet sound echoed not just once, but it reverberated another time. So you heard two stanzas of the same song. Some of you have perhaps been where there's the echo effect, and you've hollered out or clapped your hands, and you could hear it. Well, imagine imagine the impact and the lasting effect if your influence and your voice comes not only off off a hard surface, somewhere in the Colorado uh, River, but it goes off the skin and the soul, the spirit of a child or a person. We have all been influenced by others, and to a degree, we're reflections of the investment of someone else, right? Just like your mother and the way you act. Since it's Mother's Day, let's give kudos to mom. They have probably a a great effect, don't they? The reverberation of a life goes on, someone says, not for one, but for five generations. Think about that. So it's not just one echo of the clap or the trumpet sound. It's five generations. And and the question again is, in what ways are you fingerprinted or imprinted by those who have gone before. Well, we've started this message already. We mentioned a few things. It is said that Jonathan Edwards' descendants were tracked for a while. Perhaps you've heard this illustration. And from his family line, there was a U.S. vice president, three senators, three governors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 62 physicians, 75 military officers, 100 pastors, missionaries, and theological professors, hardly any record of any lawbreakers at all in the family of Jonathan Edwards, who died at the turn of the century, 17th, 1700s. Well, there was another family nearby in, uh, in New York by the name of uh, Max Jukes. By the way, uh, Jonathan, or John, uh, John, wait a minute, 
Jonathan Edwards and Sarah had 11 children. How many, remember how many boys and how many girls he had? He had 10 girls, one boy, and the girls were all six foot tall. He called them his 60 foot of daughters. And uh, what a great family and uh, what a wonderful legacy he had. Another man, of course, I mentioned by the name of Max Jukes, contemporaries. Jukes lived in New York at the time, had his family was quite a bit different, seven murderers and 60 thieves, 128 prostitutes, 140 other convicts, 280 indigents, that's ne'er-do-wells, 440 alcoholics, and of the, of the over 1,000 descendants studied from the Jukes family, it was concluded that the family in total cost the state over $1,300,000 in delinquency charges, and the family was known only for idleness, poverty, and crime. What an echo effect, right? Your uh, influence has great effect in generations to come. So what sort of inheritance are we leaving our children and grandchildren? And I know that some of you, or I heard it tonight, some of you have been told, you do that just like your parents, or you look like, or you walk like, or you speak like, or you respond just like your dad. And I, I know that all of us have those traits we wish we didn't have, perhaps sinful in some regard. Uh, you got my anger. You got my controlling spirit. You have my, sorry, son, you got one of the attributes that are not just genetic, but moral attributes that I have by repetition in my life conferred upon you, and I'm sorry about that. All of us have mannerisms and attributes and habits that wear, as a, as a Proverbs uh, 20, as a 22, 6 says, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart or move off that well-ingrained uh, path or trail. Well, let's review quickly the story of Abraham and Isaac, uh, father and son. In Genesis 25 and 11, we mentioned already there was a, a blessing effect, right? Genesis 25 and verse 11, it came to pass that after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the, the well, the high roy. Certainly there was this um, unconditional blessing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, conferred upon this family because of no merit of their own. It's just God's choice. His choices are always right and perfect. But he conferred upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this blessing that through this family, the, the Messiah would eventually come in him. All the nations of the world would be blessed. They would have a promised land, promised seed, more than the stars of heaven. And that had really nothing to do with Abraham. But there were blessings in this home because of Abraham's obedience, just as there are in your home with your children. Isaac grew up in a home where he saw his dad simply leave Ur of Chaldees at the command of God and simply go, not knowing where he was going told his kids and his wife, let's, let's go. Where are we going, Dad? We're going to follow God. That's an unusual statement, right, for that time and place. And yet he heard the voice of God distinctly, and off he went uh, to Canaan land, not knowing where he was going, but just imagine growing up in a home like that. Imagine the stories you would tell about your father who simply obeyed God. He was firsthand participant in that wonderful act of faith, that illustration of Calvary, where he became uh, tied upon the altar of sacrifice. I say he, Isaac, willingly submitted himself to his father's notion that God had told him to go up to this Mount of Moriah and sacrifice 
his son, and it happened to be Isaac. Imagine growing up in the home and telling a story of the miraculous redemption, uh, the story of the ram whose horns were caught in the thicket. Well, Abraham, of course, was blessed not only by covenant, but by his own spirit of faith, a strong dependence upon God. Maybe your parents were like that. Maybe your mother or your father exuded this strong reliance upon God throughout their life, and that has a telling effect on the next generation. I told Robin, get your Portuguese ready. Every once in a while, I'll throw a phrase out to her in Portuguese, and she's not bad at mimicking Portuguese. I said, you're pretty good at that. Because at any time, if God would call me to the mission field, I'd be willing to go. Why? Because of my daddy's willingness to go. I saw the blessings firsthand of life on the mission field. The blessing echoed. Then there was the hardship. And I, I, I got to tell you, no life is exempt from hardship, but it's interesting that some of the hardships that Abraham faced, Isaac did too. Can you think by review? Sure. Went through some of the same things. Just as Sarah and Abraham struggled with infertility, so did Isaac and Rebekah. They faced that trial only more faithfully than his daddy did. And we see that in Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac, instead of finding a concubine or marrying again, entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Sometimes, isn't this wonderful to know, parents, if you've maybe had a life where you've had a habit that seems so tough for you to get over, a sin that easily besets you, uh, isn't it great that your, your children can learn from your negative example? Isn't that great? You don't have to be just like mama or daddy. And so in this case, we see that he really excelled his own daddy's influence. He learned a lesson from his dad's failure to not, and, and he didn't seek another wife or concubine. He waited on the Lord. He went to the Lord and treated the Lord to work his will in his time and his way. I uh, mentioned this morning King Hezekiah. What a horrible pattern Ahaz set for him, his daddy. But he learned from that, and we can learn from our parents' mistakes. That's a good thing. Uh, I know sometimes at the kind of the end of the trail of life, my mom and dad would sit down and they talked to me. And here's what, here's what they said if we, if we had it to do all over again. Have you ever said that to your kids? If we had it to do all over again, this is what we do different. And dad and mom often would tell me, we would not have sent you to the MK school. We lost years of our life as influence upon you as our children because we in those days that was the model that they that they did they used on the mission field large mk schools with dorm parents and such and we loved it we didn't know what we were missing but we missed the influence of our parents our parents missed us if you can raise your own kids in your own house do it that's the bible way and they said often to us we missed that but there was a prayer here made and the lord heard and the twins were born. The echo uh, of hardship. Uh, we often in our family, uh, we like to not just waste our trials. All of us have, of course, marriage battles and struggles and financial difficulties, health crises. Um, in this case, infertility, but waiting upon God for a long time. Some of you are perhaps in God's waiting room. Feelings of uselessness, um, car troubles. If you have a car, you have troubles. And so we are challenged by 
the difficulties and hardships of life, not to waste them, but to help our own children when they go through similar heartaches and hardships. As we see, they went not only through the battle of infertility, but for famine as well, leanness in the cupboard, so to speak. And so as a, as a parent, it's a neat thing to transition now into parenting parents. As the kids get older, it's been a wonderful thing for my wife especially to counsel her daughter, our daughter, I guess that would be, Whitney. And so Whitney will often call, and she starts with mom, of course, and getting advice about raising little ones and going through the hard times financially. And it seemed like a couple of weeks ago, both of their cars broke. Isn't that how it goes? Both of them tend to break down at the same if you have two cars. and It's just how life is. And yet we encourage as parents, hey, we went through that hardship. You'll, you'll endure it. You'll get through it too. Parents, we ought to have that, uh, that sense and in the hardship to be a real blessing. Well, um, and I think in that second hardship, even uh, there was a learning aspect, a curve, and Isaac didn't go all the way down to Egypt as his father did in one instance, in one season of famine, but he only went as far south as Gerar. And so I think there, was a, there is a learning curve that Isaac demonstrates. Thirdly, and this is where we kind of we stopped last time, there is the echo of self-preservation. We see it in chapter 26, if you'll kind of uh, go there, chapter 26 and beginning in verse 6. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Of course, verse, first verse of chapter 26 is about the famine, just like there was, and the, there's the echo again, in the days of Abraham. Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And Isaac dwelt there, and the men of the place asked him of his wife, and, she's, and he said, she is my sister. Boy, there's a, can you hear the echo off the canyon wall? She is my sister. Twice Abraham had said that about Sarah. For he feared to say, she is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah, because she was fair to look upon came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Fascinating terms there in the King James, isn't it? Both Abraham and Isaac lie about their own wives to protect their own skin. I've wondered about this. Uh, this certainly could not have been good for their marriages, right? <laughs> in fact, you'll find in Abraham's case that even before he married Sarah, they had a prenup agreement in Ur of Chaldees. And the prenup was this. Anytime any man asks about who you are in relationship to me, you tell that man that I am your brother. <laughs> Imagine that. We can't wrap our minds around that. Very interesting because of the close relationship of history. He's now in the same place where his daddy lied to a, we think that the, the word Abimelech, this is kind of a, a dynasty title. It's not the same Abimelech, but the, the idea is the, the same king, the title for king here. And so he has, just as this area was known, of course, for its moral impurity and its license, so it is that we see now uh, the same situation reflected, echoing in the life of Isaac. Of course, you remember uh, the story of Abraham. He stops in Gerar, and the Philistines took Sarah into their harem. Abraham makes no protest. Instead, he says this, She is my sister. She is my half-sister, which is a half-truth. What do we say about half-truths? They're whole lies. 
In other words, she's the daughter of my father by a different mother, if you follow that. And so he married a half-sister. And when Abimelech takes her into his harem, he's warned by God not to touch her. She belongs to another man, excuse me, Abraham. And Abimelech is chided or chides Abraham for his lie and his deceit. And all Abraham can say back in Genesis 20, verse 11, is this, Well, king, I know that the fear of God is not in this place. Well, it should have been in your heart, Abraham. He says, the fear of God is not in the place. So I told a half-truth. This is a double echo. He did this twice in his life, 25 years earlier when he went to Egypt. Same thing. He was disgraced there. And Abraham tells on himself as he talks to King Abraham, or King Abimelech, and Abimelech, so why do you do this? He says, well, that was our prenup. Everywhere we go, you are to say, when asked, not that you are my wife, but that you are my sister, putting her life at great risk morally as a risk to sexual misconduct, adultery, even rape. Now, the question I have as I study this and have in the past is why is Abraham so afraid to man up and claim her as his wife? She is no doubt a beautiful a beautiful prize, but he knows that because of her beauty in that culture, he might himself get killed. We don't understand that in our day and age as much. Uh, and it's not really a warning against marrying a beautiful woman. So <laughs> that's not the point. We need to pause here. And I began to study this a little bit because it really was one of those Huh? Moments as you study the Bible. Why in the world did both of them follow this pattern? Well, there's no excuse for it, but the area in which um, we are discussing, south, almost the southernmost region of the land of Palestine, where the Philistines took up camp, and where not far away were the five cities, which is now the Dead Sea area, the region, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar and those cities that were destroyed by God's judgmental fire, that area in those days was known not only for homosexuality, but for, for license to uh, uh, all kinds of immoral, perverse, corrupt behavior. We see that from the story in Genesis 19 of how bad it was. It became so bad that God turned up his nostrils and says, there's no hope. These are reprobate folks. And uh, Lot, your family needs to get out because I'm done with them. We know that, the, that, that rape was commonplace and murder uh, to get what you're, whatever you wanted, whether it be a person, uh, was just common as well. And so that has a, a cultural bearing on, this, on these men as they traveled south to Egypt or south to the edge of the promised land where this area was known for its immorality. They were simply protecting their own lives by saying these things of deceit. Was it right? No. But that's the context, and certainly the context in which God destroyed the cities, the five cities there in that basin, which is now the most vacant area almost in the world after God judged it. But they are perverted, abusive, a culture inflamed with lust that would not stop at anything, including murder. And so men married to beautiful women in that area, traveling especially as, tra as strangers, it was almost a foregone conclusion that you would either get murdered, uh, you would certainly lose 
your family relationship, your wife could be taken. And so that's why these men said, tell them you're our sister. Now, that's, that's horrible, isn't it? It is. But the, it's self-preservation. And both daddy and son followed that same pattern. It's a reminder to me, and I was talking to Brother Doug about this before the service, of how quickly and how deep moral corruption can imprint a culture. And it's not a very long period of time before we begin to uh, examine um, moral license from this idea of, well, we just gotta, we just got to appreciate different lifestyles, <laughs> alternate lifestyles. It's not a very long road from that to the story that we see in, in uh, Genesis 18 and 19 and beyond where there is just this corruption in the streets. I don't know how long it is for America, but know this, that it's deeply immoral situation that, that Abraham and Isaac found themselves in, and America is on the same road. And uh, it, is a, it is a dangerous thing indeed. Well, they, uh, the, the man looks out his window, chapter 26 and verse 7, and sees, uh, and sees Isaac sporting with his wife. That's always been an interesting phrase to me, sporting. What is that? What are they, what, what's the sport they're enjoying? Parcheesi? What is that? Tennis? Shuffleboard? The idea there in the original course is caressing as married folks will do, a public display of affection. So this king, Abimelech, understands that there's a, better, there's a closer relationship than sister-brother, and so he calls Isaac on the carpet, and Isaac says in verse 9 exactly what his daddy said. Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety she is thy wife. How saidst thou she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, Because I said, Lest I die for her. She's not worth that. That's sad. To some degree, that attitude about women was culturally acceptable, but that attitude about moral, as I mentioned earlier, moral corruption is a fast-moving train. So there's the echo of blessing and success. There's the echo of hardship, famine, and infertility. There's the echo of self-preservation. Both of these men lied about their wife. And then there's the echo of strife and contention with the Philistines. Chapter 26 Let's begin the reading at verse 12. Isaac was blessed by God. His crops and his flocks grew. And Isaac sowed in the land hundredfold. God was just blessing him. The Bible says that. And he grew great, went forward. And finally, he kind of eclipsed those around him. And there was no room for all these, all these, um, all these possessions that Isaac had. It's a growing family, growing group of servants. And so they... Uh, they were chi uh, striving together just as they had, just exactly as they had with Abraham and his servants. The Philistines envied him for all the wells which his father's servants had digged. The days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines had stopped, plugged them up, filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we are. There's, the land can't, this area can't tolerate all of our families. And so he, he left. That's an interesting thing right there because Abraham did the same thing. He didn't stay and kick out the Philistines. He left. What does that tell you about Isaac? Pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar, dwelt there on the outskirts. He went to the outskirts. And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham. Same place. The waters are the same place. It hadn't moved. So he doesn't try to find new water. He just goes to where his daddy had already dug the wells. He called them the same names his father had named them. Here's the echo. 
And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found a spring of well, a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerard did strive just as the days of Abraham. The water's ours, they said, called the name Essek. Striving, dispute. Another well strove it also, and he called the name of it Sitna, enmity. He removed from thence and digged another well, and they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. There is a Rehoboth Baptist Church in Griffin. Did you know that? Pastored by Bob Spaulding. Anybody know what that word means? Finally, there's room. <laughs> I think more Baptist churches ought to be named Sitna, maybe. <laughs> Striving, content. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. And there he found room, just as his father had. And then he went up from thence to Beersheba. And then we see that final echo. Not only is there this contention, and I, what I appreciate about this, and I mentioned that there, you, know, you don't always have to fight your way through to, to a resolution. You don't. And you see that in the spirit of Abraham. You see it very much in the spirit of Isaac. Instead of saying, no, wait a minute, this is my father's well. He dug it. Get out of here. This is our, we finally, we, we did the work of uncovering the well and finding it for you. Well, well water, precious, clean. But he said, no, I'll tell you what we're going to do. If they're claiming it as their own, as they did in my daddy's day, here's what I saw in my dad. I saw my dad walk away from all this work and its work to uncover the spring of well, a well water and, a, and fine water to begin with. And this is what my daddy did and here they came and I watched as he left that well and dug another well. And there, came, there they came again. And instead of fighting about the second well, he says, okay, if you want it, Philistines, it's yours. Take it. I'm not going to fight you over water. We're going to move on. And they dug another well. And finally, there was this spirit of, okay, this one, I guess, is ours. Now, listen, uh, you know, peace isn't the, the absence of conflict. It's the presence of a reconciling spirit. I learned that from my father. You don't have to fight about everything. Some folks come to work looking for a fight. They do. And there are pastors that would rather fight than anything. I think they get a thrill out of that. Uh-oh. Anyway, the electrician, I don't want to fight with him anymore. But here he is, and he's, he's just acquiescing. And I think there are some things you better stand on. You better have convictions about. You ought to know what they are. But I don't, uh, I don't think that everything is a fighting matter. And Abraham taught his son that, and his son learned the lesson to just realize, hey, we can go on, we can move on, we can, we can develop another well, we can find water somewhere else. Can you imagine how upset his servant after working fine water so, and, and digging out, cleaning out those old wells, and finally gets to that one place where they're not bothering him anymore. And then the last echo, it's found there a little bit farther in the text where Abraham, or excuse me, Isaac goes to, goes to the same place that his daddy did, Beersheba, the place of sevens, the oath of sevens, where years earlier they had sacrificed seven lambs there and made a covenant with Abimelech. It was a different Abimelech, but made a peace treaty. And the same thing, it's just amazing to me how many similar experiences that Isaac had with Abraham. And they have this time where they again make peace with the Philistines in, in Beersheba, the well of sevens. And... 
what I like really about Beersheba is that's the place where God again reconfirms his covenant and Isaac, just like his daddy, worshiped there. So what a powerful, you say, what's the point of this sermon? Is, I mean, things happen to us in success. Yes. Uh, history repeats it. Yes. More than anything, I want you to know this, that your life has tremendous power to influence other generations. And so use and influence others in such a way by good habits that these wonderful traits will be carried on life after life after life. It has been my privilege to, um, I, I haven't kept count. Somebody said, you should have kept count of how many funerals you have officiated. I haven't done that. But you know the greatest thing about that is seeing families and hearing their stories about how their mother, how their grandfather, how their father has influenced their lives in such a way that they have been imprinted and will never forget the great blessings of positive, godly influences. And so I just want you to know that maybe you're thinking, I, especially young parents, thinking, man, is this kid ever, Whitney will call us and say, I don't know if we're going to survive another week <laughs> with this child. It's just, listen. You just keep walking that well, uh, ingrained path, do the right things, and you know what's going to happen. One day, you're going to get a call from your daughter who has a son or daughter and say, listen, I appreciate what you did, and I am now responding to life in the same way, and thank you. You, were, you didn't write a book, but you lived a life. And that has influenced the way we go through hardship, the way we go through infertility, the way we go through famine, so to speak, financially, the way we go through health crisis, the way we go through life. Daddy, Mommy, thank you. This is a message probably should have been shared in, on Mother's Day, but thank you so much for your influence that never... You think, I, I just, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever get through to this kid. Oh, you are, and you will, and uh, you'll see that echo generational echo effect for years to come. So cheer up, don't give up, and make sure <laughs> your influences are good ones. Father, we thank you for this story of Abraham and Isaac, and we're thankful for not just the covenant, the promise of the covenant through uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're thankful for the, the line that brought to the earth the Messiah. Lord, we're grateful for the lessons that we have learned from those who've gone before us, faithful generations. And Lord, I pray that as we gather now and enjoy remembering uh, the grand influence of Calvary, we pray that we would be thankful tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.